There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Uh, what you guys can't see, because this is obviously a podcast, is that Ben is wearing a crown uh, <laughs> and throwing himself what appears to be a very somber tea party in his yes. house. Yes, yes. Jokes G- aside. Gin, gin, actually. I'm going to drown myself in gin over here. In Farage gin. Yeah. Uh, we are obviously <laughs> recording a bonus episode to discuss the life uh, and death of Queen Elizabeth II. We will explore her, her life, her legacy. Uh, why she is revered by so many British people and why the monarchy is less revered by many other people then. And what happens next for Prince Charles and for the the institution of the monarchy and for the UK. And then later in the show, you're going to hear a banger of an interview. Uh, Someone who is, he's in the elite echelon of podcasting, a guy named Dan Snow, brilliant podcaster, brilliant historian. You guys just talked, Ben. I saw you a very cool uh, sort of study backdrop. What did you guys talk about? Yeah, Dan, you know, a uh, great history podcaster um, from uh, the UK. We talked about kind of what is Elizabeth's place in history? Like, you know, where does she rank in the kind of pantheon of kings and queens? Uh, what what her legacy will be um, in, in terms of, you know, her steering through decolonization, preserving the monarchy, um, what she represented uh, to, to British people, um, and kind of brought that up to today, you know, and, 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 you know, talked a little bit about, well, you know, where's this all going to go without her, <laughs> but, but it's a great interview. And, and Dan has got like a, a terrific perspective as, uh, as someone who's like constantly thinking and talking about history. So people should check it out. Yeah. And look, I think Queen Elizabeth is the type of figure, uh, you almost need a historian to really capture exactly. like, the sweep of her impact. So I'm yeah. really glad you guys talked. Um, so let's just jump into it. So, you know, Queen Elizabeth uh, passed away on Thursday, September 8th uh, at her castle in Scotland. She came to the throne in 1952. Her reign spanned 15 prime ministers, 14 U.S. presidents, and according to a tweet that I absolutely did not fact check, 59 different starting quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, I mean, that's it says a hell of a run. It says a lot about her. It says a little bit about the Browns, too, I have to say. It's a little bit yeah. about the Browns. Yeah. Sorry, Michael yeah, O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. um, she was not born destined to be a monarch. Her uncle, uh, the former king, Edward VIII, abdicated from the throne so he could uh, get into a very messy marriage with an American woman that was considered too scandalous. Uh, a major scandal at the time. Uh, I believe that Edward and his wife were revealed to be Nazi sympathizers. So I guess yeah. you know, bullet dodge by everybody here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like big bullet dodge there. Yeah. Could have ended um, pretty poorly. Yeah. But when Elizabeth's uh, uncle abdicated, her father became King George VI and she the heir to the throne at the ripe old age of 10. World War II starts soon after, which gets us what uh, to what I think is, you know, the, the first moment of, of many in the future of just extraordinary public diplomacy for the Queen. Let's give that a listen. I can truthfully say to you all that we children at home are full of cheerfulness and courage. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors soldiers and airmen, and we are trying, too, to bear our own share of the danger and sadness of war. We know, every one of us, that in the end, all will be well. That was uh, then Princess Elizabeth uh, making her first public radio address on October 13, 1940. She had been asked to do this by Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Uh, it was ostensibly to boost the morale of children of the Commonwealth, many of whom had been shipped abroad for their own safety because they didn't want to get bombed by the Nazis. But I also think it meant a lot to uh, the adults listening that day. And I think also it was intended to tug on the heartstrings of Americans debating whether or not it was time for the U.S. to get into the war. It's been, I mean, hearing that is pretty amazing. I just can't imagine that responsibility already at, at, at 14. 
Yeah, actually, what's also amazing is it sounds just like her. You know, like, yeah, it really does. It sounds like a fourteen-year-old her. It's like a very distinct uh, cadence. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a reminder, obviously, for longevity that you know uh, she was around for the war, um, but that you know she then ended up kind of serving uh, as like an ambulance driver later on yeah. when she was a little older. Um, so she actually, you know, participated in the most seismic event, right, in, in British history, really, uh, you know, through the days of the Blitz um, and, and, and being in, in the UK, being in England throughout the whole conflict. Um, I think that's part of what I think, you know, speaks to, like, the affection some people feel for. She represents kind of this finest hour uh, of of the British people standing up to not Nazism, weathering the Blitz and and prevailing in World War II, and like yeah, there she is. Like she was, she was a part of that even as a kid. It's also something kind of sad about it, right? Like mm-hmm. you know I, that that you know even when she's like fourteen years old, she's given like radio addresses. It it speaks to the fact that she she didn't you know get a choice here. Like she once yeah. uh, once the abdication happened, like she was she was in the seat and you know headed for the rest of her life uh, doing stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I think her parents refused to send their daughters to Canada or someplace safer. They wanted to keep them in the UK, and clearly they just made them a part of this fight. So, boy, I, I can imagine, if you're old enough to remember World War II, and imagine hearing that, like, to know that the queen was suffering with you, <laughs> like, living through this nightmare with you through thick and thin. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, Buckingham Palace, like, uh, took, some hits uh, actually like during uh during the blitz and I didn't know that. Yeah and and then I I think for a time Elizabeth and her sister Margaret were sent to one of the other castles but that doesn't mean that there weren't like air raid sirens and they would have to go down to the basement right and you know bombs can hit palaces just like they can hit apartment buildings so it's not like they were you know spared from from danger uh because of their identity even if they were living in in nicer digs than other people um so yeah i mean i i yeah the fact that she went through that i I think is is lent her like a a bit more uh, heft uh throughout her her reign as it were um i mean I, i mentioned this to dan snow but like i went to the normandy uh 70th commemoration of of d day and, you know, there are all the leaders sitting on the dais and there she is. And she's the only one sitting there who was around for World War II, you know. So, like, it, it was a little different for her being there than than anybody else because she had, you know, she remembered D-Day, right? She remembered all those events. She met all those people. You know, she she met Eisenhower. She met Churchill. Churchill was her prime minister uh, when, when she became queen. Yeah. So... Close listeners of the show and even not so close listeners of the show will know that we are not always or or often kind to Boris Johnson, the former prime minister of the UK. But the man can be when he wants to be a pretty powerful speaker. And I found his speech uh, to Parliament about the Queen powerful. And I think a worthy attempt at explaining what the Queen meant to him and what she meant to a lot of people in the UK. Here's uh, here's one of two clips. Think what we ask of her in that moment, not just to be the living embodiment in in her DNA of the history and continuity and unity of this country, but to be the figurehead of our entire system, the keystone in the vast arch of the British state, a role that only she could fulfill because in the brilliant and durable bargain of the constitutional monarchy, only she could be trusted to be above any party political or commercial interest. I mean, I think what's interesting about that description from Boris Johnson is that he's not exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really what she was for for the United Kingdom. Yeah, it was that big. Yeah, it's yes. Yeah, it uh, look, it was a really great speech uh, by Boris Johnson. We don't say nice things about Boris Johnson very much, uh, but I, I think it's a reminder that. You know, in moments like this, like, you know, the, the politics kind of go out of it. Um, but, yeah, he, he really captures it, right? Like, in America, it, it, it's so different. Obviously, we fought a whole revolution so that we wouldn't have a king or queen, <laughs> and, I, and I'm glad we did. Me too. Um, but each, you know, to each their own, and everybody's got their own system. And in their system, I think part of what's distinct is, like, you have these 
you know, pretty brutal political blood sport battles, you know. Um, but because she's not in a political party, um, she's just this kind of symbol of national identity and national unity, right? And in the U.S., like, we kind of make, we kind of elect the president as that, right? <laughs> but no president can can be that to everybody, right? Because there's always some people on the other side, particularly in recent years, who kind of reject the president as the leader of the entire nation. Um, and, and so I think it's that, like, it's sometimes hard for Americans to understand that, but like, she, you know, and I know some British people don't like the monarchy, right? So this is not like a hundred percent case closed. You know, they're, they're, they're Republicans in Britain too. People who think it, it should be Republic, not a constitutional one, but the majority favorite in part because of her, because how she carried herself, because you never really knew what her, political leanings were. She was pretty scrupulous, not just in kind of carrying out her duties, as he said, like doing all the things that a queen does, showing up on... I mean, I remember I was there, Tommy, like once during like their VE Day Parade, right? The Victory in Europe Day Parade. Um, and there she is, trots out to the middle of the parade, stands there at kind of like the memorial. And and you realize she does this for every event, you know, mm-hmm. at the Olympics, there she was right. like opening up the Olympics and also doing the kind of pretty funny James Bond sketch if you want to Google that. Yeah, but, but Paddington Bear one too. Paddington Bear recently, right? But like, the, and this can seem kind of weird and, <laughs> and trivial and it is a little weird, but you know, every country is a little weird. Um, but you also have to think that this is a country that's kind of been through some weird twists and turns in the last century, right? I mean, you go from being the empire of like two-fifths of the world to to not, to just being like this country that is still a pretty peculiar country because, you know, like you've got England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, right? So it's a few countries kind of stitched together. And and so what makes people British? Like what makes people like share a national identity? They don't have a written constitution like we do. It's this kind of unwritten thing. And, and so she, the, the institution of the monarchy is one of the main elements of what it means to be British. And, and she, I think uniquely, in part because of how long she did the job and also because of how, you know, how well she did the job. Like, uh, I think she just kind of represented, you know, what it meant to be British to a lot of people, but not everybody. Um, but that's a big deal, right? I mean, that's... Like for Americans, like we think about the flag and our founding fathers and the Constitution, we all have these kind of symbols of what does it mean to be American. Um, you know, they're pretty contested these days. Um, and and over there, like you know, she she is definitely like probably the you 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 know you couldn't help but have her in your life <laughs> again every holiday, every major event. Like she's she's there. Yeah, she is. I mean, I will not because we are showing so much respect today for Boris Johnson. Repeat the joke that the queen waited to die until he would no longer be in office and have to give her eulogy. I will not repeat that joke that was made on Twitter many times. But this second clip uh, from Boris Johnson's same speech, I think gets at why a lot of people are feeling the queen's death so personally. Millions of us are trying to understand why we are feeling this deep and personal and almost familial sense of loss. Perhaps it's partly that she's always been there, a changeless human reference point in British life. The person who, all the surveys say, appears most often in our dreams. So unvarying in her pole star radiance that we have perhaps been lulled into thinking that she might be in some way eternal. But I think our shock is keener today because we are coming to understand in her death the full magnitude of what she did for us all. You know, I think that that comment is so interesting because it it goes back to what you were just talking about, about the way the United Kingdom has changed so much during her lifetime. I mean, it went from literal empire, the sun never sets on the British Empire, to basically just an island. But she was this constant for so many British people, this constant presence. She was out in communities, talking with regular people all the time. And I think they love her for that. But, you know, there's also this very dark history of colonialism, the horrors inflicted on people in in India and parts of Africa in Ireland. You know, it's also why I think you're seeing a lot of people respond uh, with a sentiment that's like, I really like Queen Elizabeth II, but I do not like the monarchy. And I think that dynamic raises some difficult questions for King Charles, who immediately takes over, I think, the minute she dies. And and the, raises the question of whether the British people continues to support 
a very expensive symbolic yeah. institution when she is gone. Yeah. No, I mean, this is like the big issue. And let's just say the discourse has been a little interesting on this <laughs> the last couple of days. Um, on, uh, uh, Twitter is probably not the, the best place to unpack your thoughts on yeah, yeah. Uh, the death of a, a 96-year-old person. Um, but I, I look, I get it. I mean, this is an incredibly complicated institution, right? Like, in in even though the queen... I mentioned this to Dan, but like, you know, it's not like there was even, you know, while she was queen, so it's not even just predating her, you know, there were some pretty like horrific crimes, right? There was Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland. There was uh, Mm -hmm. like a brutal suppression uh, of Kenyan, of Kenyans and, 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 you know, Kenyans put in concentration camps and, um, and this is being done, that was done like not at her order, you know, because this is not someone who had made any decision-making power like she wasn't uh directing any of this but it was done in her name you know um because everything is kind of it's the royal arm you Mm -hmm. know the royal air force royal uh the royal armed forces etc um so i understand those emotions i will say part of her legacy to me was trying to to deal with the complexity of that and you know i'll just you know people have noticed probably listening to this podcast like why 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 do why do I like the queen um I haven't quite put it this way before so I I was thinking about this this episode and I was thinking I was going to put it this way you know Barack Obama was very became very close to her um and they got along well they you know they shared kind of a pretty dry sense of humor um he spent a bunch of time with her on on his visits there I, I will say Tommy like we saw Obama get a lot of racism, you know, mm-hmm. be on the receiving end of a ton of racism. Including from uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah, including from Boris Johnson, right? Who said he harbored anti-British feelings because- It's a colonial mindset. And yeah, because right? he, yeah, all this garbage. We saw it from Republicans and we saw it, you know, from a bunch of foreign leaders, you know, like, a, let's just say, like, they're not a lot of enlightened people. Um, I, I will say that the Queen seemed to go like an extra mile really, to embrace Obama. Um, and I think he would say that too. Like, um, and, you know, he has this background, right, where, you know, his grandfather was, uh, like, thrown in prison uh, by the Brits in Kenya, right? So, um, and that history was present. And it almost seemed like she was trying to to make sure that, you know, she showed the most possible hospitality to Obama to because, you know, it's part of the complexity of dealing with this legacy. That's not to say there's no racism in the royal family. We all saw like the Harry and Meghan interview. So I'm not saying these people are perfect. Some some endemic challenges in the institution and the family, et cetera. Yeah. But I am saying, and actually, but I think you saw Harry and Meghan, none of that was directed at her. They specifically said she was not. They specifically said she was not. And like, I always, you know, it seemed like she, you know, she went, you know, she went out of her way to speak Irish in Ireland, something our friend Michael O'Neill brought to our attention. And, and shook um, hands with a former IRA commander, Martin McGinnis. Shook, uh, yeah. You know, when the IRA, I, I believe, had killed a member of her family yeah. in a bombing. I mean, that sort of that effort of reconciliation, whether it's racial or, you know, Catholic Protestant, was a part of her legacy. She reportedly was pissed off at Margaret Thatcher, another revered figure, for not sanctioning South Africa during apartheid fast enough. Yeah. There's a lot of anecdotes like that. You're like, oh, this is an impressive person. They do. They add up. I mean, there's enough evidence there that, I mean, again, she, I'm sure she didn't do enough. I'm sure that people in the, in the former colonies would like more apologies. Some people would like reparations. Some people like Commonwealth. We get that. So before people, you know, I'm like, they're right. (laughs) They're right there. You are right. But I am saying like for a, a woman who, you know, represents like the most kind of conservative possible institution in the world. She did seem to try to strike certain grace notes. All I can say is my own personal experience was she treated Barack Obama with a hell of a lot more grace than most Republicans did in this country um, and and other leaders did around the world. But yeah, like to, to look forward, I think you're also right. This is a pretty perilous time. And just take the Commonwealth as an institution. We are, we've already seen you know, countries uh, make noises about leaving. I think Jamaica, right, um, recently um, opting out here. I think you're going to see more of that. I think another thing, Tommy- Scottish like, independence. Exactly. Could be on the table, yeah. 
Exactly. Like you, you follow that. We had Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish Independence Party, on this uh, on this podcast. You know, like I, I don't know, man. Like I, I, this is not a shot at Charles. Like as he he begins his his reign, as it were. But like, the, Queen Elizabeth might have been part of what was holding together both the United Kingdom and some of these ties that Britain maintained with uh, its former colonies and Commonwealth countries. And I think they're going to have to go the extra mile here and actually probably do more to address some of the history and some of the sense of grievance, whether it's from people in Scotland who won independence or whether it's people in the Commonwealth who won out to, to hold that together. I mean, that may yeah. be the, the 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 burden that falls on Charles and whoever is prime minister, let's trust now, hopefully, you know, uh, labor uh, in the future. Um, you know, may have to kind of go even further here um, in order to hold hold some of this together. Yeah, and, and look, what's interesting and notable, I think, about the the Queen with Charles now, the royal family is there is a vast PR apparatus behind them, yeah. thinking through every step of this. I mean, there was this amazing story in the Guardian back in 2017 about the just staggering amount of planning and, and preparation that went into. This Thursday, this week, with the Queen's death. I mean, they had a code word. It was London Bridge. Civil servants were supposed to say London Bridge is down to convey that she passed. There were these elaborate plans for how to notify the 15 governments outside the UK where the Queen is head of state and the 36 nations where she's a figurehead. Just like insane detail. And we actually kind of saw some of this playing out in real time because Liz Truss, I think, might have been doing prime minister's question times or, or was in parliament. And then all of a sudden she gets passed a note by her deputy and then Keir Starmer and her both step out of parliament. And there's these like rumblings in the building where everyone kind of realizes what's happening and that the message they just got, the only thing that could pull them out of this moment, you know, Liz Truss is what second day was the Queen's passing. It's like pretty incredible. Yeah, no, there, I remember getting approached in like 2016 when I was in government, Tommy, for I think from the BBC or to tape an interview with Obama for the event of her death. I mean, so, wow. so these institutions have been They've planning been for a while uh, to, and I don't think he did. I think he, but I think he's done, he did that later. But um, yeah, you could feel that sense of, of preparation um, in, in choreography. Like even when they put out the first statement that she was in ill health and being attended to, mm-hmm. it, it almost felt like the beginning of like, setting something in motion. Um, it, it didn't feel like they were suggesting she was going to get better. It is just, it's insane really to think about the fact that the day before she had met with Liz Truss and, you know. And I think or, Boris or, Johnson maybe. A couple days that, before, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so so the, within a couple of days, uh, um, it, it just historical whiplash. I'll say like, and Boris Johnson kind of spoke to this. It's weird that the death of a 96-year-old person felt I mean, not not that it was a surprise, but it still felt like a little shocking. Um, yeah, shocking is the word just because she's just been around, like even as an American. Like I remember as a kid, I remember being aware of her. You know, like mm-hmm. I didn't have like opinion about her, but I remember her like, you know, seeing pictures of her and uh, you know, like I think she rode horses with like Ronald Reagan or some some shit. You know, <laughs> so she's just kind of been <laughs> around in the air, right? And so, yeah. but you're right. The but the choreography will get them. I think this will be a very intense, you know, couple of weeks. And this funeral be very interesting to watch that funeral and who's at the funeral and yeah. who's not. Um, but yeah, like uh, then I think that the real work begins. And and look, it may not they they may not hold it together. I mean, no, they know, may not. Uh, and I don't take a position on whether that's good or bad. We're just you know. Uh, I think it's just it, it's going to be, uh, you know, post-Brexit, um, they're just going to have to define who they are post-Brexit, post-Elizabeth, and, and maybe to some extent kind of post-Commonwealth. Um, and, and, you know, that that hopefully will fall to like a new generation of, of British people, um, both in politics and, and just in the, the broader society. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. 
They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org donation. That's unrefugees.org donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. I mean, on, on our side of the pond, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about um, President Obama and, and First Lady Michelle Obama's like, like deep, real affection for the queen. And I saw they had statements out early. It was also very notable to me that Trump's statement about the queen was like the closest thing I've ever <laughs> yeah. seen from him to a normal presidential statement or post-presidential statement. He said this was this is verbatim language. She will always be remembered for her faithfulness to her country and her unwavering devotion to her fellow countrymen and women. And then Melania and I will never forget Her Majesty's generous friendship, great wisdom, and wonderful sense of humor. Like nothing could sound less like Trump than that very kind, magnanimous language. Which he probably didn't write, but, you know, it will take it. I, I will say, like, there, you know, there were some times like when Trump was president or a lot of times, right, when you were kind of embarrassed that he was the president. One of those times was I remember when he met Queen Elizabeth, I was like, and this speaks to like, you know, why she kind of mattered, because like if I, if he met like the king of some other country, like I probably wouldn't have thought twice about it. But I just remember being so embarrassed. And then then he gave some interview where he was like, you know, some some people told me that the queen said that was like the best time of her life or something uh, like such utter bullshit, you know. Just but it just clown. shows like he wanted, you know, everybody he kind desperately, of yeah. whether whatever you think of her, like there's a reason why everybody uh, wanted kind of that that approve that mark of approval from her. She carried a certain weight. I'm I'm sort of sitting here imagining you getting the BBC interview for uh, Obama while in the White House in 2016 in the event of her death and going to a, a planning meeting and trying to sell that to Dan Pfeiffer in an election year is like, yeah. is a good use of time. And I'm laughing very hard. Definitely you, every NSC press comms meeting we ever had where we tried to get them to do our stuff. Well, well actually, like it wasn't going to air until after she died. Right. So it was just it was just eating up. It would have eaten up hours in the day. But he did do it. He ended up doing that that interview. So I think the BBC will have some, you know, if you see a documentary with some Obama footage, uh, I think he ended up doing that in his post presidency. But uh, that's good. Yeah, it was legit. He really, he really did like her, and he liked Philip, uh, who, uh, who apparently was, you know, exactly like his, you know, stereotype. Like he was 
drank at lunch and you know was you know funny about people in an off-color kind of way you know got it nothing wrong with that um so whenever there's a momentous news event like this especially when there's some strong feelings on either side uh there's no other way to say it people get off some great jokes and i and i yes. and i'm thankful for them on twitter this week is no different i will not read from irish twitter because that's a little <laughs> yeah, too hot yeah, for this, yeah, for this little, podcast. It's pretty, it's pretty fucking will, hot, yeah. I will read this uh, this this historic paragraph uh, by a columnist named Patrick Frayne. Uh, he writes for the Irish Times. He wrote this graph in 2021 about the Irish feelings about the monarchy. Quote, having a monarchy next door is a little like having a neighbor who's really into clowns and has daubed their house with clown murals, displays clown dolls in each window, and has an insatiable desire to hear about and discuss clown-related news stories more specifically, for the Irish, it's like having a neighbor who's really into clowns and also your grandfather was murdered by a clown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, just genius. Uh, in one life. of the most genius things I've ever read. Um, some of the tweets I, I really enjoyed, Ben, uh, was uh, if you're in line for the throne, stay in line. That's a very good harkening back to all the elections here by someone named uh, at M. Bernick. Uh, here's another one that's a little, a little more heated. Please be respectful when talking about the queen. She was a head of state, a monarch, a mother to multiple pedophiles, and most importantly, a devoted cousin to her husband. <laughs> that was someone who calls himself gaming disorder pog. Uh, <laughs> and this was my favorite one. Now we all know I was innocent. Amen. R.I.P. Queen E. That was baseball legend uh, Reggie Jackson, Mr. October, referencing his incredible role in the, uh, in the Naked Gun movie. I mean. Accused of killing the queen. Yeah, if there if there are any younger listeners who've not watched the Naked Gun, uh, find it. It's got to be somewhere in the Reggie Jackson. That 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 was pretty awesome. I will say the Irish point, like the Irish kind of get from me like a a total pass from the 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 decorum uh, police on on anything involving the the monarchy. Uh, if if you'd you know if you'd lived through uh, Irish history, um, you know uh, you'd be a little resentful of that institution yourself. Um, and it. I will say, though, formally, like Sinn Féin, right, which is the political party that, you know, associated with Irish nationalism and, and republicanism, um, put out like a very like gracious statement. You know, so there was like there was like uh, an interesting dynamic. There was some some pent up frustration, will you say, or, or, or and some good humor from the Irish. But also, uh, I think, you know, a bit of an understanding that like she did preside over the period of the Good Friday Accords and. Um, uh, and she went to Ireland and, uh, you know, the first monarch to go to Ireland in a really long time in 2011. Um, yeah, but a yeah, visit. yeah, there was, there was some, you know, let's just say it got a little hot there for a while. Got a little hot. Yeah. Uh, before we get to, uh, Ben's interview with, with Dan Snow, I did just want to do one thing, which was just say like, you know, Ben, we here at, at Pod Save the World, we believe in accountability. We, we worship at the altar of facts and truth and believe that democracy dies in deceitfulness. I'm auditioning for the uh, the Brian Stelter job. Just kidding. But I did want to debut a, a segment called Mistakes Were Made. Yes. Because I had people all up in my mentions this week telling me how stupid we were on yeah. Tuesday. Uh, so I'm saying it all in the passive voice to create some ironic distance. So thankfully, we have listeners who are much smarter than us. Uh, and I want to anonymously thank all of them who flagged three things. One, entrecote is a premium cut of steak. You might call it a ribeye. Yeah. I ate duly, a bunch of entrecote when I was in uh, Paris recently. Duly noted. Yeah. Uh, we should clarify that uh, British Prime Minister Liz Truss's weird speech about cheese and pork is from 2014 when she was environmental secretary. So apparently it just goes viral every time she's in the news because it's so fucking weird. But I didn't. Wow. <laughs> I didn't mean. I, yeah. Wow. I feel like an idiot. Uh, I did okay. too. I thought it was from That's, her like thank announcement. You, thank you, listeners. Sorry we're uh, dumbasses on that. Yeah. Very, a very excellent uh, BBC uh, producer flagged that one for me. And then finally. I heard from a, a sharp journalist in Tokyo who pointed out that former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's assassin was not motivated by religion, but motivated by the killer's claim that his mother had been bankrupted by the Unification Church. So certainly angry at the church, but less a religious issue. And there's a great Reuters story about this that uh, I've tweeted and that we can put in the show notes. But well, just, that was know, that one was my fuck up because I, I do I did yeah to me uh, like I, I remembered the connection to that church. Um, but then I woefully and inaccurately shorthanded it as religious when, in fact, it was just like, first of all, people should Google that that church. The, yeah, re, re, the, the re, Reverend Moon. Uh, it, Former Washington uh, Times. Owner, church, church is a strange way of describing it. Uh, it yeah. It's kind of a cult, basically. Right? C, yeah. It's or, a cult yeah. with like political uh 
political angles to it as well. But yeah, no, that, that, uh, and Reuters, by the way, great journalism, uh, particularly, they always had good journalists in Asia, I have to say too. Like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Reuters like, uh, crushed it in Asia always. So thank you guys. Yeah. And we, uh, we, 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 when we're dumbasses, you know, let us know. Uh, you always do. I notice it in my mentions, but, uh, no, I do too. I think this is a good segment. We should keep this going. Mistakes were made. Uh, any final thoughts from you on the Queen before we get to your interview with historian and podcaster Dan Stone? The only thing I'd say, and because Dan references this, but I think it's a good way for us to because people can be like, you know, Queen fatigue. Uh, some, or, although some people won't. I mean, I was on a plane, Tommy, coming back to this very hot city, and um, it's really hot here, by the way. Los and, Angeles, yes, yeah, it's, it's been like, sweltering. Yeah, I've never felt it's this. Like Ninety-eight. Hot. But um, you know, I was like noticed that everybody in my row was reading like news about the queen, you know, like just you glance over at their phones and, you know, you know and, and that's her. It's actually not the institution of the monarchy. Like, like all due respect to Charles here or um, uh, the, like whatever you think about her. And even if you think this is overkill, like there's something about her that, that she mattered to people and people are interested in her. She represents like a, a massive era um, and, uh, and yeah, like that's why I'm glad we could do this, this pod and, and glad we could get Dan on too. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it is, it's funny. Some, some people might say like, how, how is, you know, the queen's death, like a foreign policy event that gets you to do, you know, a bonus episode. It's like, well, it's sort of going to be the biggest story in the world for a week or two. It's a historic. All over the world events. too, right? Yeah. Th- there's not many people. I don't, you know, not, not many people, you could count on one hand, the people who, if they die, like everybody in the world is like aware of that and has yeah. some thought about it, good, bad, or, or mixed, you know? Including American presidents. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it for us. When we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Dan Snow. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. I'm so uh, glad that... Uh, at this you know, sad and momentous and historic time, uh, we can welcome to the pod Dan Snow, uh, historian, uh, emperor of the uh, history hit empire. Um, everybody should check out Dan's podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll plug it some more at the end, Dan, but thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. You're the perfect person to talk to. Uh, you, you know, you you take a view of, of, of history um, that I think is very relevant to, to the consideration of, of this moment with the Queen's passing. And, and I wanted to, to start by asking you to place her in history, right? Like there's all this immediate reaction to her death, uh, obviously all these remembrances, but in the, in, the, in the whole sweep of British history and the history of the monarchy, how do you think Elizabeth ranks? Like, like how should we think about her place in history? 
Well, I think that even her, even the people who don't believe in monarchy, in fact, especially those people, would rank her very highly, and they'd and they'd rue that, they'd regret that because she has been such a a, a fantastic constitutional monarch. She, uh, first of all, longevity always helps with monarchs. Victoria, Elizabeth the uh, first, Elizabeth the second. It you you but you get enormously. It benefits you to be there for a long time. You get good at it when you're when you're allowed to just go at it for decades and decades. The other thing is that she. Is a very. I think she is an important figure because she came along at a very particular time in British history, the early 1950s, yeah. where Britain was retreating from global hegemony in a, a profound way. Uh, her grandfather, when she was born, ruled over one fourth of the world's population. It's it's bonkers. It's wild. Yeah, she yeah. presided over the de- effective dissolution of the British Empire, but she, whereas. You think about other empires declining and collapsing. You think maybe about the Austro-Hungarian Empire with that kind of ancient emperor shambling around his palace in Vienna. and He seemed to kind of embody the, the collapsing, aging empire. Suddenly, the British Empire is collapsing, and you've got this young, dynamic, interesting woman there who sort of felt like a mid to late 20th century. She, she could play the role of a kind of globe-trotting celebrity attractive so mid 20th century figure she's hanging out with JFK and she she looks the part so so it she performed this kind of really interesting role of going yes there's this moribund impoverished empire but 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 we we've got this kind of figurehead who who looks like she's beginning this new elizabethan age so i think she allowed brits and allowed the rest of the world to kind of come to terms with their loss of influence and loss of standing because because of kind of what she embodied it's a, it's a very weird and very soft and and very emotional thing um and i think that that also she was then a, a head of state through some very turbulent times britain had socialist yeah. prime ministers if you can believe that in the us prime <laughs> yeah, ministers yeah. who called themselves socialists we yes. had and and we and we had wars of uh, we had wars of decolonization we had wars of uh, you know against for example argentina in the early 1980s in the falklands so the imperial war so she was present through all throughout that so an, an incredible calming influence if you like a point of stillness uh, at the heart of british life and and yet with no particular power no yeah. we, we don't know what influence she kind of wields within the private conversations we had with prime ministers but i don't think it's very much but but yeah. and, and it's something you guys would it's interesting for you. We we've separated that role of head of state and political leader. Yeah. So we can all hate our political leaders and be rude about them down <laughs> in the pub <laughs> and slag them off. And yet we all have this kind of wonderful person who floats in and opens hospitals and, and gives medals out to, to veterans who's un- who's a little bit more oh well uncontested. And in fact her uh, you know approval ratings are through the roof compared with any uh, political figure in the world. So yeah, th- that's that's how that's how we think of her. And, and you know, is we think in terms of legacies here a lot in the United States, uh, and she's more complicated in a way because, like you said, she didn't have, like, a direct responsibility, you know, for, for governance, right? Uh, That's why it's a little weird to see some of the criticism of her, you know, it's not like she was, res- you know, directing, uh, you know, wars against, uh, uh, you know, British colonies, um, but but I understand the complexity of of the institution she represents. But is her legacy is it preserving the institution of the monarchy? Is it um, is it something more intangible that's hard to understand if you're not British about what she kind of meant to to individual people? Like w- yeah. what do you think stands out as her 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 enduring legacy? Well, that's a really good question. It's something you're used to asking about presidents, and Joe Biden has been burnishing exactly. his legacy over the last six months, right? And, and getting big yeah. bits of legislation through. Uh, uh, that's a, it's a it's so, it's something we don't really talk about in the UK. I think her legacy is probably felt in her own lifetime. So she just made feel people feel better. She did that bit that the president can do, and we yeah. all remember Barack Obama doing, for example, in that amazing moment he burst into song in 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 that black church following that appalling shooting, and and that was a moment that sent shivers down everybody's spine who witnessed that. So she would, that was her job. She would do that. She would, she did that. She literally turned up to the aftermath of the last mass shooting in, in the UK and, 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 and would talk to people and by all accounts was a, a soothing person in, in that situation. She was, I actually thought she gave a good, a very good speech, very good address during COVID. And, and that just made people feel a bit better. Her legacy probably is that she maintained the monarchy through a potentially yeah. very dangerous phase, a phase of, of taking, taking Britain from a world before TV. 
before when only a tiny proportion of the population attended university became college graduates she she kind of transitioned to through the internet era through kind of the creation of mass highly literate electorates who probably had had she been someone else she, there would probably have been a referendum or there would have been more question marks about her her reign and indeed i think her passing we will now see that institution will come under pressure increasing pressure so how how whether she's preserved it for decades to come is another question but she certainly did the tricky job of steering it through the second half of the 20th century into the first a bit of the 21st which actually is probably is probably no mean feat right because yeah that was that we 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 saw pretty radical political experimentation in, in given the broad sweep of british history we, we, in that in that time yeah, I, it seems like she, you know, one of the other pieces of, of of her legacy was dealing, obviously, with this transition from an empire to a more, you know, normal country, if you will. Um, and I mean, my own memory, you know, Dan, you and I were trading messages. Uh, you know, her relationship with Barack Obama was really interesting, uh, in part because he kind of represented a piece of that colonial history not just as an American president, but as someone whose grandfather was, uh, or his father was Kenyan, his grandfather was literally kind of, you, you know, uh, in the conscripted and, and, and imprisoned uh, by the uh, British Empire. And and she struck up this kind of very warm friendship with him that felt in some ways, it was like she was going an extra mile to, to demonstrate like grace uh, to Obama. I think they got on naturally, but uh, I always felt like she, she was, it was important to her that she have a good relationship with him in part because of his identity. And you saw her, you know, travel to Ireland and, and speak in, yeah, in Irish. That was huge. Uh, you saw her go to South Africa uh, after uh, Mandela became president. I'm not fanboying out here. She obviously bears some, you know, uh, responsibility in a way for the what the institution of the monarchy did in the colonies too. But talk a little bit about because I think Americans, you know, don't quite. We have our own version of an empire. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But we certainly don't know what it's like to kind of formally go through this process of decolonization. H- how did she manage that? This transition from an empire to a commonwealth. This tricky balance of wanting to maintain good relations with former uh, colonies, but you know, to do that, it's a balance. Do you apologize? Do you do you, you do do you hit certain grace notes? How did she manage basically going from being an empress to 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 being the head of a commonwealth? Well, it's I mean, that's right. And 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 actually, you know, we just for the American listeners, the Commonwealth is is a is a sort of in name only organization, really. I mean, like it's not a <laughs> yeah. super it's not a super intense friendship. We got you know, it, it's we have amity, but you know, more Brits would go and, and hang out and, and and marry and work in Spain and Italy and France and the US and you know we, it's it's not it, we don't we don't all feel that you know the Ghanaians and the New Zealanders are any close to us than anybody else really so the commonwealth is a the commonwealth was a kind of a face saving exercise i think to cover up the kind of end, end of empire but yeah, she, she, the Irish trip was amazing. She, she went to Ireland and she came very close to apologising, but certainly behaved with great grace there. Her, her relationship with Barack Obama, I thought, was extraordinary. And you know, in in your you know your question is what is her legacy? I mean, her legacy is that probably like you're talking about her on this Pod Save the World podcast. Like, are you going to talk about the yeah. death of the King of Belgium or the King of like, the King of Sweden or the King of like, it's, it's? I couldn't tell you the name of those guys. Yeah. No offense to our listeners in in Belgium and Sweden. God bless you all. But the but <laughs> I think the um, uh, I think the there was this weird. There was this, there is this weird thing about being British, and maybe I'm just British, so I think this. But there's this weird thing, and it's around. It's about James Bond films, and it's about Harry Potter, and it's about the Beatles and and music. Yeah. And, and I think the Queen is part of that. Maybe, of course, it's about language and our closeness to you guys. But we, uh, the the Queen, the Queen became one of the most famous people in the world, and was talked about by Barack Obama, no less, a man who's great, was was no Anglophile after all. We know Tommy Vitor and you took the bust of Churchill out of the Oval Office. Yeah, yeah personally. Yeah, start, yeah. I, I need to. This. I'm glad I can have this out with you now. But anyway, so <laughs> yeah. so this is so this is like a this is a guy who is not programmed as some some Anglophiles like Jack Kennedy were like kind of Anglophile, but. But, and yet he, at Shimon Peres' funeral, I'll never forget, I was driving a car, this is Shimon Peres' funeral. He's in Jerusalem talking about Shimon Peres' funeral, the Prime Minister of Israel. And he says, the three greatest states people I met in my time as president, Mandela, 
Perez, Queen Elizabeth II. He wasn't talking to British audience there. That blew me away. I was like, that Matt, that's weird. I can tell you the story about that, Dan. Uh, I was a speechwriter on that speech. Um, I, I thought it was a great speech, buddy. And, and so, well, thanks, but I didn't. That I can't take credit for that. Uh, what happened is I, I wrote this speech, and I, you know, I'm Jewish, so I really, and Shimon Peres is like, you know, I, I couldn't admire an Israeli more, and yeah. So I, I, I wrote this speech, but it was, you know, as usual, it's missing one thing, and 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 he added a few lines, and he, he was like, I want to convey how singular Shimon Peres was, the, the 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 level that he was at, and. And Obama put that line in himself. He's like, I, 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 you know, he said, I remember him talking to me. I think it was on the plane over, actually. It was like a late addition to the speech. And he said, you know, when I think about the people I've met, like the, 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 the he's in the class of people with like the Queen and wow. Mandela, who, uh, you know, just kind of, who, and, and, and his point was both the kind of grace she had and the kind of stature, but also the longevity, right? To your point, like the, the yeah. sense of having seen it all and met everybody, right? Um, which well, is, yeah, is, is as, truly a special thing. As I always say, if General Howard got off his ass and uh, chased George, <laughs> captured George Washington on Long Island, you guys could have enjoyed the sweet we benefits had of the crew. You could have had her. <laughs> but no, I think, I think the, I think the, the, the so, so that, so like Britain, we talk about this as Brits a lot because it's slightly immeasurable. But like for some, we do kind of still like to feel we are a bit more important in the world than our just our economic position would would dictate, right? And I guess the queen, I guess that's a legacy. I guess the queen is part of that. So it's having this statesperson who who perhaps is able to initiate or certain or perhaps close certain conversations and and get access that maybe you wouldn't be as excited when Liz Truss, Prime Minister, Theresa May, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, yeah. Prime Minister, arrives in Washington. So. I, I, but that is very intangible, and that's why we are. That's why we all argue about it, and we fall out about it because we can't. You can't measure this stuff. It's, she doesn't have a legislative achievement to her name. She, and yet, with you're talking, you're asking me about her. We are talking about Barack Obama mentions her, so therefore, it, it does. And there's a sort of sense that, like, oh yeah, it's kind of James Bond. You know, we, MI five are really good. The Queen's are really important. Like, yeah. that, and I, I wonder if any of. I think that will be, and so in a way, she was able to smooth out the transition from global hegemony. And I think we're now going to come to terms with that even more so now with her gone. And of course, we have huge problems in the UK in our relationships with Europe and in, indeed in our internal relationships around secession of parts of the UK, Scotland, namely. And so those conversations, I think, are going to get... There's, there's, there's less of a sense of certainty around those conversations now because yeah. we've lost. So it's, it's, a tr- it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a kind of a, you know, some of the emotion might also be a concern, right? I mean, you've got a Scotland, a Scottish independence movement, you got, you know, Northern Ireland's always a question, particularly post-Brexit. You know, you've got some lingering resentments in former colonies, you've got the relationship with Europe to rebuild. Um, and she kind of smoothed over some of those issues to some extent, right? Because of her celebrity. I mean, it must feel like you know, you got Liz Truss and King Charles, you know, not, not to be negative on Charles on his first day in the job, but like, it does feel like this is potentially, you know, rough waters ahead, you know? Yeah. And listen, we've never had, it's quite unusual to have a first in British political history because we've been around for a while. So it's quite exciting. And we've never had a new monarch and a new prime minister in the same week ever before. So that's kind of weird. So neither of them will have ever had the weekly chat with ever before like with any other monarch or prime minister respectively so it, it's that that's that's a that's kind of a strange time uh strange time for us but you know you and and just just knowing that the queen so i i've got a really good there's a jewish historian friend of mine we talk we interview i interview him regularly about the holocaust to holocaust and he's his mum survived belson and she was friends with anne frank and she was one of the last people to see her in belson and she, and he said his mum arrived on death's door she arrived to england this little suburb of london you know, it's a funny little place. And, you know, it's called Neesden. You know, no one would have heard of it. And she and she had an expression. And she goes, if the Queen is safe in Buckingham Palace, I'm safe in Neesden. And for me, that was an, a really arresting moment. And as a kind of liberal kind of guy who's always a bit snooty about the Queen, to hear that kind of really robust, like immigrant, working class, blue collar attachment to stability 
to to sort of some kind of permanence. It might not be perfect. It's a it's someone some old woman's living in a big old palace on the hills. Kind of a weird system, but yeah. what it, it but it it is it says something which is this is a country in which when there is not going to be a kind of weird radical upheaval that that she lived through uh, when she lived in Germany, uh, and I and that expression has just stuck with me, and I think that's it, and that's why. Uh, there is, as you as you say, there is a there is a sense of uncertainty now. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because uh, it, it, it connects to kind of, I think, the positive legacy of of the Queen, and hopefully something you know, the positive aspects of the UK's continuing role in the world. I saw a very moving picture today that I think was tweeted out, may have been by the British Embassy in Kiev, of lots of uh, flowers that Ukrainians had placed. Um, at the British Embassy, um, you know, these are people going through the midst of a, of a, you know, the most brutal war imaginable, and here's a pile of flowers, you know, in memoriam to the Queen that that they, they took the time to place ordinary people in Ukraine, um, which to me speaks something to that she came to be connected to, you know, fortitude and uh, defense of democracy in a way, and we've seen Britain Britain be among the most stalwart supporters of Ukraine. I know you and I are watching that too. Um, in, in a way, the the kind of things that she struggled uh, I, again, I'm not trying to romanticize her too much. The kinds of things that she represented. I remember being at Normandy uh, for the anniversary of D-Day. She was there, sat next to Barack Obama at lunch. You know, these issues are still very alive in the world today. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that as she dies, you have this Ukrainian offensive. You know. Um, against essentially fascism, right? The same forces that blood and soil fascism that that she was in the service against in, in World War II. Um, I, I, I just wanted to give you a chance to reflect on that connection of what's happening in Ukraine right now. I know you're a military historian, military buff in a lot of ways. Uh, what do you, when you're watching that Ukrainian offensive at the same time that you're dealing with this outpouring of grief and, and, and emotion in the UK... Can you put that together for us? You know? Well, I don't know if I can put it together any better than you, man, but it's it's happening, isn't it? So I think we've got the we've got this political first in the UK, this transition of political power and of monarchical power, uh, we which which is uh, unique so far. Uh, we have uh, we've basically this week we've made this kind of enormous decision to just completely flip our energy security arrangements on their heads. Uh, but effectively, Europe and has, has said we're going to we're going to cut we're going to end our dependence on Russia. Uh, we are looking probably at the most important, possibly the most important week in Europe in military history in Europe since 1945, possibly. If uh, and this Ukraine offensive seems to be seems well so far, it's, it's it's doing extraordinarily well. And I think you're right. I think those flowers for me probably represent. Look, this is what we found so distressing about Donald Trump. We come to believe that the U.S. word was its bond, and that we, one thing could be relied on is that America was always going to be the bastion of democracy, of multinationalism, of multilateralism, of of international institutions, partly because America set them up, for, you know, fine, it's for, you know, partly for their yeah. benefit, you know, the World Bank, NATO, what are these things? It's not, yeah. It wasn't totally altruistic, but I, but I, by the way, as far as world hegemons go, I think we can have a separate conversation. I think the USA has been pretty remarkable over the last 70 years. Could be worse. Could be could worse. Be, could <laughs> be worse. And we may yeah. sadly find out. So, and I think in the same way, so that I think in the same way, when it's like, you know what, if there was a sense, again, this is all soft. It's all a sense that if Britain gave its word something, the, the Queen represented longevity, politicians might come and go, but there's, it wouldn't be as choppy now under the under the bonnet. I think we probably chop around as, as many as most polities, but there's a kind of sense, you know, the Lannisters always pay their debts. It's like, if the Queen's there, again, if the Queen's in Buckingham Palace, I'm all right in Easton. If the, if the Queen is there, Britain's made a commitment to Ukraine. That feels kind of like a bit of a that feels like an extra little bonus guarantee, right? Yeah. And so it must it must be now we can debate whether that's true or not, but I think these these impressions matter. And in the in this for example, I've been so struck. Vladimir Putin endlessly tweeting out about British intelligence and we Brits have yeah. been very flattered. Well, our British intelligence yeah. spent yeah. half the Cold War working for the Russians. You know, the the, the yeah. idea that this is kind yeah. of there's this myth around. <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble for that. There's this myth around, you know, the, the, the sort of James Bond I've mentioned before, the Queen, the sort of British, the British way of doing things. 
we it's very flattering to us it's, i don't think it's true but it obviously kind of matters in some sense and i i just wonder if those flowers in kiev it's like saying you know you're it's the constancy it's a constant ally reflected by the fact we have this kind of constant presence at, at the at the top in the uk yeah no i think that's right um and uh she did she just represented i mean i remember obama in normandy um where listeners of this podcast will know i famously tried to walk in into the bathroom that the queen was in at the time uh, I, by the most, way uh, i am so here for those stories and <laughs> my most glorious I, moment in, in government i uh, also i just you can hear how uncomfortable you are every time like it's it's, yeah, scar- yeah, yeah. it's scarring man and i, I i'm just scarring here for that. When she comes out and she she fixes her handbag on her arm, but uh, I mean, it, you know, he said he's sitting there. He sat next to her at lunch. You know, she she makes dry, funny comments under her breath to him, uh, 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 like through these events. Uh, and then he's sitting next to her at the event, and he's like, "I'm sitting next to her," and he's like, "I realized, I think it was like the 70th anniversary of D-Day. You know, I realized that she she served in, in World War II. You know, like that's oh yeah a, a lot of constancy. That's a lot of consistency." Um, well, look, Dan, I, I, people should check out if they haven't, uh, history hit your podcast. I listen to almost every episode. And as you'll see, when you go to it, there's a lot, it's almost every day you get a a look at a piece of history, you get smarter, you've got great guests, um, and you've built this crooked media-esque podcast empire that, uh, that people can also surf through if they, uh, if they're history fans. So thanks so much for joining us to put this in perspective, uh, and look forward to, to keeping in touch. Thanks, man. I'm a huge fan of your pod. So thanks to you and Tommy for what you do. Thanks again to Dan for joining the show. Thanks, everybody in the UK. Stiff upper lip, etc. Yeah, keep calm and carry on, guys. Drink some Farage gin. You'll be fine. Drink some Farage gin, lads. (laughs) Have some local cheese. (laughs) Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com.